Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Clive. I'm part of the leadership at the church. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Sandra. Uh, and this morning I'll be sharing God's Word with you. If you're a visitor, just to let you know that uh, for a period of nine weeks here at Forest Town, we're following uh, a curriculum called Gospel-Shaped Outreach. Uh, the idea has been to, to focus our church on outreach and on evangelism, uh, to bring a central theme which we've been pursuing on Sunday mornings uh, and taking that through into our midweek groups and into people's private uh, quiet times. Uh, a lot of us have got hold of the book which has got journal space and so forth, uh, and we're working through a, a methodical look at the idea of reaching out. Uh, so far, the first teaching and, and the first week was about how are we doing, and just to look at a bit of a stock take on how we are with regard to outreach uh, as individuals and as a church. Then we looked at who is Jesus. We looked at, at who's this person that we're introducing people to. We looked at who are we, who are we reaching. And then last week, and shared with us about what the gospel plan is. Today we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the role of prayer and the place of prayer in outreach. Prayer is one of those things where a lot of Christians confess to struggling. Um, for some people, it's, it's almost like a, a discipline that they feel that they, they have to do, otherwise God's going to mark them down. And so, Christian bookshops are full of programs for us to learn to pray and, and teachings on prayer. I just want to leave a thought with you before we move on about uh, prayer, about outreach, to say that when, when I first met my wife and fell in love with her, I just wanted to talk to her. I would, we were at university together. As soon as I could get out of class, and sometimes before I should have, I would be out connecting with her, and we'd spend time together, and we would talk. I wanted to know as much about her as possible, and I wanted her to know as much about me as possible. We spent a lot of time talking, and then I would go back to my halls of residence, and I would get there, and I would phone her. In those days, you didn't have mobiles. You had to go and put money in a machine, and I would phone her, and we would talk some more. And it wasn't because we were obliged to. There was no set of rules. There were no programs on sale at the university about talking to your girlfriend. We just wanted to do it. And I want to encourage you, don't let your prayer life become an obligation. Don't let it become guilt-driven. Oh, crumbs, I haven't prayed. God will get me. Let your prayer life be driven by a relationship with God, about wanting to know Him better and wanting Him to know you better. Talk to Him a lot. The role of, of prayer in outreach, we're in a battle. If you're a child of God, if you have Jesus Christ living inside of you, and if you have read His Word in which it says to us that we need to go into the world and make disciples, then you are involved in a battle. We don't always think of it in those terms, but there is a battle to extend the kingdom of God. It's God's plan that as many as receive Him become children of God, and, and we need to get that message out. But it's not a passive thing. There is an enemy who doesn't want that to happen. And therefore, we're involved in the battle. And I, I just want to encourage you. Sometimes I think Christians are in a position where they say, well, I don't know if I want to get involved in that battle. I don't know if I want to attract attention. I don't know if I want the enemy to focus on me. So if I begin shooting my mouth off, I'll attract his attention. And he'll come after me. Let me say this to you. The devil is totally evil. He'll come after you anyway. 
You know, some people are a bit like on, on, in, on the battlefield. They just want to dig a, a hole in the ground, a foxhole, and hide in it and let the battle flow around them. He doesn't, he'll, he'll come after you anyway. You need to be active for God. He's our protection. He's the one who fills us. So don't sideline yourself. Get involved in the battle. But the important thing in this battle is that we don't see ourselves as being alone. We fight it together with other Christians and the church under the leadership and the protection and the command of Christ. And we fight it with powerful weapons. I don't know if you, those of you a bit older, remember the Indiana Jones movies. There was one in particular, I can't remember which one it was, where Indy is running away from the bad guys. As he spends most of his, his, his movies, he spends running away from the bad guys. I don't know if you've noticed. And the bad guys in this case were a bunch of guys in robes and turbans and carrying swords. And he's running through a crowd and this guy jumps out in front of him with a sword or a couple, I can't remember, and he pulls a whole bunch of moves. You know when you see these guys doing martial arts moves? And Indiana Jones looks at him, unbuttles his holster, takes out his revolver and shoots him. There's an American idiom, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Okay? And when we're in the spiritual battle, I want to say to you, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. There's a scripture I'd like to read to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 2 to 6. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We need to be fighting with the right weapons, and one of the most powerful weapons that we can bring into play in the battle that we are involved in and in the role of reaching out to people with the good news of Jesus Christ is prayer, is being in conversation with our Heavenly Father. Now, I'm not sure, I don't know you all, and I don't know what your relationship was like or is like with your parents, but I had a a really good relationship with my dad. And he was incredibly important in my life in finding out what to do and how to do it. To be honest, a lot of things that I learned, I learned by just being with my dad. A lot of things I learned just by observing him. And I want to say to you, you will grow more familiar with God by spending time with him. So don't neglect your times of quietness and of prayer and of worship and getting close to him. But some of the things I learned from my dad, he told me. Some of them he told me because he believed I needed to know them, and God tells us things through his word. Some of them he told me because I asked. I would go to him and say, Dad, what do I do now? I have to confess I didn't always listen when he told me. But I'd go and say, Dad, what do I do now? And that relationship with him persisted even when I left home as an adult, got married, began to live my life, became a father. I would phone my dad. Something would crop up and I'd phone my dad. The first time I, I bought a car by myself, I needed insurance. I phoned my dad and said, what kind of insurance did I need in my car? It was a real old student bomber. It was a third party job. Just, you know, just cover the other guy. Don't try and rescue this one because it's, it's not worth the money you're going to spend. He would give me advice. Sometimes when I phoned, he would give me advice. Sometimes I would phone him for encouragement. I'd be feeling down. I'd be feeling like I wasn't succeeding and I'd phone my dad and he would He'd enthuse me, and he would encourage me, and he would lift me up. Sometimes when I phoned my dad, he would come, and he would fix it, especially when I was younger. I I was a rather adventurous motorcycle rider when I was 16 years old, and there were occasions that resulted in the motorcycle lying at the side of the road and me lying at the other side of the road feeling embarrassed. 
And when you make those kind of phone calls, my dad didn't give me advice. He got in the car and he came and he helped to get things sorted out. When we pray to God, we're talking to our Heavenly Father. And sometimes we ask Him for advice and we ask Him for guidance and we ask Him to, to teach us. Sometimes when we talk to Him, when we phone Him with our prayer phone, He encourages us and He builds us up and He enthuses us for the battle. And sometimes when we get on the heavenly prayer phone to Him, He actually intervenes and He shows up Himself and He changes things. It's an incredibly powerful weapon to be talking to our Heavenly Father because it puts us in direct communication with the Creator of it all, with the Creator of the plan for the victor. And so, first point I want to make to you is, in the battle that we fight, our weapons are not carnal but spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Don't base your outreach on just your skill as an orator or your preparation as a scholar. Base it on your relationship with God. So, what do we pray for when we pray about evangelism? Jesus gives us some examples, and the first thing that we find in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 38, Jesus talks about praying for laborers. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah? The correct commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead. Cast out demons. That's the, 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 the instruction we were given as, 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 for, for Christ to his disciples. Well, he was doing it. He was setting the example. And he was doing these things. And then, then it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Moved by compassion. Jesus helps us to fill out our prayer list for evangelism by saying, pray for laborers. It seems obvious, but sometimes we don't think about it that way. For some people, they have a sense that there are a particular group of people in the family of God, and evangelism is their job. They're the evangelists. After all, the Bible does teach us that some people are particularly gifted as evangelists. It talks about pastors and preachers and teachers and evangelists. So, is it not so that in every church... You have that group of people that are the evangelists, and you let them get on with it. It's not the case. There is a massive harvest out there. I, I say this quite often. The stats I have, and I don't know if they're the most recent, but less than 12% of people in this country even go to church. There are an awful lot of people who don't know Jesus. There are lots of young children out on their bikes and playing on the fields this morning, who have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about Jesus. There's a massive harvest out there for us to go and bring people into the kingdom of God. And it needs us all being involved. And we should pray for the Lord to send out workers. Our prayers, our focus, God's intention to bring people into the kingdom of God. I want to point something out to you when, when you may be sitting in that place of saying, this is not my gifting, this is not my primary calling. I'm not a good speaker, I'm not a, a gregarious kind of person, I'm not eloquent, I'm not learned, learned in, in, in the Word, so I will leave it to the others. I want to point out how the early church worked, and I want to set the background. A problem has arisen in the church. 
in Jerusalem. This is the first church, the blueprint that we operate from when we look at how churches should be. A problem has arisen. The administration is not going well. One group of people in the church come to the apostles and say the other group of people in the church are getting more attention than they are. The church had a ministry in Jerusalem of giving food to the poor and the widows and handing out food to people. And the one group came and said, the people from that community are getting more attention than we are. And the apostles in conversation realized that for the things to run smoothly, they needed to be an administrative team. They needed to be a management team for the church. And so it says um, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3 to 11, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from amongst you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pominus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I want to stop there in verse 7. So one of these guys was a guy called Stephen. The gift that's recognized initially in Stephen's life is the gift of administration and being a wise person who can make fair judgments in the running of the church. But if you carry on in the Scripture, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of faith and God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue with the freedom, as, uh, freemen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen's primary job in the church, this is the man who becomes the first noted martyr of the church, his primary job was called to be part of the administration. But it doesn't stop him evangelizing. It doesn't stop him reaching out. Every one of us has that calling, and we should pray for God to energize us, but also to stir in the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world. Around the world. We need more people taking that responsibility and stepping out. The second thing that we've shown in the Bible to pray for around evangelism, we find in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, Paul is writing, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. You probably, like me, imagine the Apostle Paul as being quite a, a driven kind of person, a very powerful personality, uh, not easily sidetracked, the kind of person that just walks in or parachutes into a situation and makes things happen. But he's sitting at this stage in captivity and he's saying, pray that doors are opened, that opportunities are created for me to minister. He knows what to say. He has the experience to do it. He has ministered in the power of God. But he says to the saints, pray for me. Probably the most famous evangelist ever. He says, pray for me for opportunities. Pray for God to open those doors. When we pray for open doors, it brings a supernatural opportunity from God. 
also makes us more sensitive in a way. You may be able to think of a time that you were trying to reach somebody and you prayed about it and God opened that door for you. I've been working with a guy for years now, probably for about 18 years, who comes by my school in a certain capacity, and he's a lovely, lovely man. But I've been trying to find an opening to talk to him about my faith. He knows we're a Christian school. He knows I'm a Christian. He's very respectful of that, but it's never been part of our conversation. The last time he was there, in the middle of the conversation, he began to talk to me and share with me that his son, who's in his 40s, has been diagnosed with very aggressive cancer, is having very aggressive treatment, and that he as a father is feeling helpless and doesn't really know how to respond, doesn't feel that he can step in and, and lead in the situation, but doesn't know how to stand by and watch his son and his family suffer. And I could say to him, I'll be praying for you. Found out about his son and now when I see him, we talk about his son and we talk about the fact that we're praying. And, you know, and shared last week that sometimes we want to climb on board the first opportunity we get and we want to go through everything and lead the guy in the sinner's prayer on the first day. That hasn't happened. But an opportunity, a little door, a little chink has opened up that I couldn't really find a way to open up by myself. The other thing, when we begin to pray for God for opportunities, we begin to look out for those opportunities. It's funny how we stimulate ourselves by listening to our own prayers. I don't know if you've ever noticed when you choose, you decided you're going to buy a certain kind of motor car. Um, I drive a Kia, so we'll use that. Other brands are available. Um, you decide you want to buy a Kia Soul, which is what I drive. Suddenly, as you're driving around, you begin to see them everywhere. Have you noticed that? You begin to notice them wherever you go. Well, the younger people, if you're looking for a certain piece of electronic equipment, suddenly everybody you see seems to have that. Nothing's changed, but you're beginning to notice. And as we begin to pray, God, for opportunities and for doors to open, we also begin to focus ourselves on those opportunities when they do open up. But when the door opens, we come to the next thing. We need to be ready to step through, and we need to be prepared to step through. And so the next thing that we're told in the Scripture to pray about um, in Ephesians, it's still Paul talking, is about faithfulness. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, and I've capitalized that in my Scripture, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, it's an interesting thing. Fear is often a key factor in whether we reach out or not. If you fear man, you won't be speaking out for God. If you fear God, you will be speaking out for him. And we need to pray for that faithfulness and for that boldness to walk through the doors that get opened up. I want to read you a passage of Scripture from Acts chapter 4 and to set the example there. Peter and John have been involved in a great public display of the power of God. The early church has been going along in Jerusalem and everybody has liked them. If you read Acts chapter 2 at the end, it says they were together in their homes and they were breaking bread and they were teaching together and they were helping each other and selling their stuff and buying things for each other. And it says they had favor with all men and people were joining them daily and things were going great. But one day Peter and John are on their way to the temple and they walk past a crippled man at the gate of the temple 
and he asks him for something he's begging. And you know the story because it's become a chorus that we sing in Sunday school and so forth. He turns to him and he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I do offer you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man goes leaping and praising God, jumps up. And as they go in, thank you, as they go into the temple courtyards, he follows them leaping and jumping, and that attracts a crowd. And with great boldness, Peter and John begin to declare the gospel. In the temple courtyards, the people who are there. And, and the people are finding it very powerful because the, the guy that they've known since he was a little guy, who's always been a cripple, is dancing around in front of them. And into the midst of this come the temple guards who arrest them and take them before the Sanhedrin. And they get threatened. But they have a real problem with Sanhedrin do because they want to stop Peter and John talking about Jesus. They, they need to stop this evangelical nature of these two guys. But they can't really punish them because the evidence of the reality of what they've done is jumping around next to them. I call him the dancing dude. He's dancing around. He's there at the Sanhedrin as well. And so they're in a bit of a jam, and so they decide what they're going to do is they're going to put a real fear package into Peter and John, and they say to them, you better not talk about this Jesus. They threaten them. These are the guys who were responsible for delivering Jesus to be crucified. So they have a track record of being serious about threats. And they have a track record with Peter and John. And they say to them, shush, no more Jesus. No more talking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, it says this, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. What's their prayer? Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they're saying, we know you've got power. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage, against the, uh, rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So they say, there is opposition. We're in a battle. The kings of this kind of, of the world have risen up. In fact, they have had their way with Jesus. And then they say this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I don't find anywhere in this prayer, oh God, it's getting really tough out here. There's opposition. Just like was prophesied, the kings and the rulers are raising up against your kingdom, and these guys have killed Jesus, and they're threatening us. Lord, get them. Zap them. Remove them. Take away the danger. Take away the threat. I don't even hear them saying, Oh Lord, protect us. What do they say? Oh Lord, make us bold. Make us bold. Give us the courage to, to walk through the doors that are opened up. Those opportunities we've been praying for, when they open, give us the courage to step in and do it. 
It's an incredibly powerful prayer, this. I want to point out to you, they haven't prayed for their safety, and they haven't prayed for the guys to get zapped and the threats to be removed because the main purpose of their lives as they see it is we need to speak up about Jesus Christ. If it costs us our lives, so be it. That's what their attitude is. And their attitude is that because they have a real understanding of the urgency and the depth of the need. I get very challenged when I read this. When I think about the times that I've kept quiet because I've been afraid of being embarrassed. These guys were under threat for their lives. And their response is, make us speak boldly. Make us brave. Lord, make us brave. They quote someone who said, Lord, give me, show me an opportunity today to share the gospel and don't be subtle about it. It's quite a strong prayer to pray. But it's powerful. If you think how these guys began the movement of the kingdom of God and the word of God through the world, the success that they had, it came from, from a boldness that they didn't have in themselves. These were ordinary people. What changed them was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as they pray this time, what happens? The building is shaken. And they come out praising God and ready to speak boldly. You know, the Sanhedrin's building wasn't shaken when they were threatened. When the rulers and the, and the threateners of the day said to them, you will keep quiet or we will get you, nothing shook the building. It was a bunch of men threatening them. When they turn to God and say, make us bold, the presence of the Holy Spirit actually rocks the building. I need to keep reminding you of this. We're involved in a battle. It's real. The opposition is real. The enemy doesn't like us. But our God is so much stronger. We are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. And we need to bring that boldness not just into living our lives quietly for ourselves, but into living our lives, reaching out to others, and getting involved in touching their lives. We need to pray also for blessing and anointing. We need to pray for God's plan in our lives. When Jesus spoke to his disciples as he was about to leave, he gave them the plan. He said, this is what you're going to do. Jerusalem, Samaria, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You're going to start, you're going to preach here and teach here, you're going to start the church here, and you're going to move out. And he said to them on other occasions, in my name you will do this and that, and he gave them the commands and the strengthening. He gave them a practice. He sent the 12 out at one point. He sent 72 out at another point. He showed them how to do it. He modeled it with them for three years. He prepared them thoroughly. He had a more comprehensive preparation plan for evangelism than we have here, as good as this is. But still, when he finally leaves them and he says, get ready to go, he says, but don't go yet. Wait for the gift that my Father has promised. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Pray for God's anointing on your life. Pray for God's anointing on what you say. When you take whatever words you have and whatever understanding you have and whatever enthusiasm you have and whatever courage you have and you put that out there, the anointing of God on that makes it more than enough. 
We've got a message to take out to the world. And for me, if I look at it, it's much more than I can handle. But one day a little boy stood at a gathering of thousands of people and there was an appeal for food because there wasn't enough. And he took his five little loaves and his two fishes and he went up to this person called Jesus and said, this is what I've got. I'll give you everything I've got. And Jesus took that and anointed it and blessed it and fed people and there was more left over. Pray for God's anointing and for God's power on what you have to give out. And then give it out. Many years ago, I was sitting in a conference where someone was talking about uh, outreach that was taking place at that stage in the foothills of the Himalayas in places like Nepal. And how he'd been out to meet with some of the local people that were ministering. And he said they were absolutely and completely uneducated. They had the meeting in a building that had electricity and a light bulb, and they had not seen a light bulb or electricity before. They were illiterate. When he asked one of them how old they were, they said, I was born in the year that the lightning struck the big tree. That's how uneducated they were. And he began to speak with a missionary that was living amongst them and working with them and saying, so how do these people minister? He said, they memorize Scripture, and they go and give what they have. He said, this guy totally illiterate, but he's memorized a whole bunch of scriptures, and he shares his testimony, and he shares the scriptures. That woman over there, she can sing. She has put scripture to song, and she goes into villages, and she sings. And he said, so how effective are they? This guy that goes out and shares the few scriptures that he's, that he's memorized, has he got any converts? And the guy said, oh, three or four. He said, three or four people. He said, no, 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 three or four villages. Take what you've got. Pray, God, for the workers. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunities. And pray for God's anointing and God's blessing on what you have. And get it out there. Put it out there. At all times, keeping that prayer going. And then, watch what God does. In the preparation for this in the book, they say this, Imagine what would happen if your church began to reflect the biblical priority of of evangelistic work. And evangelistic prayer. People would begin talking and messaging each other with requests to pray for opportunities with neighbors or at work or with family and friends. The fabric of the church would be woven together with one ongoing prayer request for a revival of evangelical religion. We can do better than imagining this. Let's find out. You know, if you look historically at every major move of the church over the last centuries, every revival as they called, you know where it starts? people praying. When you look into the history of the revival in the Hebrides and so forth, you'll find it started with some old ladies praying in a cottage. A very powerful tool because when we bring God into our plans, when we bring God into our knowledge, when we bring God into our preparation and we release Him, suddenly we're doing something that's according to His plan. So I want to encourage you. Bring prayer powerfully into your outreach. Pray for workers. Pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness. Pray for anointing. And watch what God does. Let's pray together now.